I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to understand what the heck Solomon is talking about. <laughs> uh, I gotta tell you, this chapter, uh, Ecclesiastes 10, it is one of the more confusing chapters in Ecclesiastes. Yep, absolutely. Without much further ado, my name is Aaron Bishop, and I'm here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey guys. So, yes, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, it is a doozy. Oh my goodness. It's a lot of seemingly one-liners that uh, a lot of them don't even make sense. There's, there's yep. a lot of cultural understanding and background in a lot of what's said in this chapter. I feel like this could today be used well in a stand-up comedy show. <laughs> uh, potentially. Uh, maybe maybe we should look into developing a stand-up comedy show around the dead flies in the ointment. And the guy who doesn't know how to get to town. <laughs> and the fool who can't find his way to the city. I yes. mean, I have a standing comment that I typically can't navigate out of a paper bag, but that's why I have GPS. <laughs> well, th you see, Solomon didn't have GPS. That's right. He didn't have that luxury. In fact... Or, uh, or Jeepus. <laughs> Jeepus, as, yes, as Jeepus, as a, some call it. Um, in fact, I didn't have GPS as a kid. When we first started driving, we didn't have GPS. Nope. It was, it's a very relatively new invention. What would we do without it? But I regardless, calling you a lot. <laughs> that's true. You call me lost a lot. Regardless, Ecclesiastes ten. It's a lot of proverbs. Really, not sure what he's trying to get at in these these proverbs that are all combined together. But we are going to take a look at it. We're going to read through it, and we're going to discuss it. And maybe by the end, we'll have some idea of what exactly Solomon is getting at with these incessant one-liners and proverbs. So, without further ado, let's read. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise is to his right, and the heart of the fool is to his left. Even as the fool walks along the way, his heart lacks sense and tells everyone what a fool he is. If a ruler's spirit rises up against you, do not leave your post, for composure allays great offenses. There is a wrong I have seen under the sun, like an error proceeding from a ruler. Fools are placed in many high positions, while the rich sit in low ones. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it, and whoever breaks through a fence may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be hurt by them, and whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the iron axe is blunt, and one doesn't sharpen the edge, then he must exert more force. 
so wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the snake bites before it is charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but the lips of a fool destroy him. The words of his mouth begin as folly and end as grievous madness, and the fool multiplies words. No one knows what will happen and who can tell him what will happen after him. The mischief of fools wearies them, for he does not know how to go to town. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a youth, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when the king is a son of nobles, and your princes eat at the proper time, in self-control and not in drunkenness. By laziness the rafters sag, and by idle hands the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life glad, but money is the answer for everything. Do not ridicule the king, even in your thoughts, nor curse the rich in your bedroom, for a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a winged creature may report your words. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment stink, ferment. A little folly outweighs wisdom, esteem. <laughs> that's what yours says. That's what my translation says. That's how it translates this opening verse. It, it has the statement and then a comma and then a single word for both of those statements. Just an interesting way of uh, of interpreting it. Regardless, this first bit, it's actually quite easy. This This first proverb is one that we actually hear use some today. One bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Mm-hmm. That's really what it's That's getting at. That's true. That's what it's getting at. You you have something good, you have something beneficial, you have something desirable, and it just takes the smallest imperfection to ruin the whole thing. So the perfumer's ointment, this wonderful thing, you get a dead fly in it and it starts to ferment and it turns rancid. Or you have someone or with a lot of wisdom or you have an entire council full of wise people and just one fool on the council can ruin it all. So this first one is pretty simple. Yeah, that one that one doesn't stump me too much. Yeah, that's but here we go. Verse two. Let's get into it. The heart of the wise is to his right, and the heart of the fool is to his left. Right. So apparently if you're genetically made weird, you must be a fool. I don't know. I mean if like you're left handed? Maybe that's it. Yeah. Mm, okay, so so there have been some attempts by people who don't believe in the Bible to make the Bible look like it's just a, some silly, foolish document by pointing out that the Bible seems to favor the right hand and not the left. Uh, it, it went so far as one time on social media, I saw a meme that said that the Bible called left-handedness a sin 53 times or, or some number over 50. That's silly. And, That's uh, just silly. Right. So, what's going on here is actually a cultural thing. Honor and shame. This this was an honor and shame culture. And so, it's speaking in honor and shame language. The right hand is the hand of honor. The left hand is the hand of shame. So, the left hand is the one that you use the restroom with. The left hand is the one that you use for shameful things such as that. When you shake hands, you do not shake the left hand, even if you're a left-handed person. It's just something that you don't do. And we see this throughout the Bible. For example, in the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin 
has the left-handed slingers. That's right. They are in a place of shame at the moment. They had just killed the Levite's concubine, and Israel all came together to wipe them out. And when they took the field, they had a special unit that was uh, 200 left-handed slingmen that was pointed out specifically to try to highlight the shame of the tribe of Benjamin. Hmm. Um, we also have in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, if a man strikes you on your right cheek, offer him the other one. Well, if he's striking your right cheek, guess what hand he's striking you with? The shaming hand. The shaming hand. That's right. When Yeshua talks about that, when he says that someone strikes you on your cheek, he's not talking about someone coming at you violently to try to harm you. He's talking about someone trying to shame you. Mm-hmm. When someone hits you with the shame hand to try to bring shame on you, offer him the other cheek. Take the shame. That's the principle that's at play there. And also, when a fool walks along the way, his heart fails, and he shows everyone that he is a fool. His heart lacks sense, is what mine says. When he walks along the way? Mm-hmm. Even as a fool walks along the way, his heart lacks sense and tells everyone what a fool he is. All right. So this has got to be uh, something to do with, with traveling. Uh, traveling in caravan, probably. Travels were more most likely done in the ancient Near East. When we see the stories of Mary and Joseph traveling to Jerusalem on their donkey all alone through the wilderness, yeah, that that's not how thing. people traveled. Uh, especially that small be families. Very, very dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Usually it was caravans that would do the traveling. It's more along the storyline of when they left Jerusalem and Yeshua was not with them. Right. They checked among all their family members because they traveled in family. They traveled in groups. You don't go out by yourself. And so this has to be something along those lines. Again, there's a cultural aspect here of you go on a long trip. Well, the fool is going to make himself evident pretty quick as the the one who just won't shut up among the travelers um, or the one who does stupid things. It's hard to hide your your antics when you're living with other people. You know, it's hard to really hide who you are if you're living with them. And when you're traveling like that in a big caravan, it wasn't a quick trip anywhere you went. So it would have taken a long time to go from one place to the next. So everyone's going to see how you behave and you can't really hide that. Right. Yeah, and that's the truth. If you've ever taken a long road trip with anyone, you really kind of get to know them. And it doesn't take more than a day to to kind of get to know your uh, your traveling partners, especially in an enclosed vehicle. Growing up, I I used to do a lot of travel. Mm-hmm. We would we would drive all over the place, coast to coast, hours and hours and hours in the car, and got to know the people I was traveling with. In high school, I would take uh, road trips with friends and we would just drive we'd go to different states we'd see how many states we could hit in a day or in a weekend i traveled out west from south carolina out as far west as the grand canyon and up into colorado with a family it wasn't my family it was someone else's family and it was a pretty extended family and on the trip there was myself who was a poor college student and there was one of the son's girlfriends, and then it was just this family. 
and that was a that was an interesting experience. He really got to to know the the people in that family fairly well on that trip. So yeah, that's I think that's kind of what that's getting at. Mm-hmm. So if the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for calmness lays to rest great faults. Any ideas? So I kind of see that as saying, depending on how you respond to a ruler's being upset with you, will play out in how things go for you. So, you know, if if you're calm and you don't just react, you stay calm, you continue with your job, you continue whatever, you're more likely to have a good um, response to that and not necessarily, you know, like lose your position or your head. Um, for can I, I, I've got an example of that one. So um, Aaron and I had been married for a year, maybe, maybe less than a year. And I was at a new job. I'd been there for one month and it came to payday because I got paid once a month. And the the owner of the company said, hey, um, I'm going to lay you off. And this came just after Aaron had been laid off as well. So it was kind of a shock. Yeah, that was a rough time. And he said, you know, you're, I'm going to lay you off. And it was like maybe 10 o'clock in the morning. You know, it was pretty early. And he said, because, you know, we just don't need a second person doing this particular job. And I've already got somebody doing it. So I don't, I don't actually need another person in this position. And I just kind of, I stayed calm. And that was definitely God doing that. But I stayed calm and I was like, well, you know, can I, can I at least finish out the day? You know, I'll just, I'll just work till five and then I'll go home. And quite frankly, it was more along the lines of, God, I don't know what else to do, so I might as well finish out the day, you know. The owner's son also worked there, and he was kind of really and truly in charge of the day-to-day, and he was out working. So I figured, you know what, I'll just wait until the son gets back, and, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And so I just kept working, and I stayed calm and just did my job. And... Sure enough, the son comes back and about flipped his lid because he's like, no, you can't, you can't let her go. We need her. We we hired her for a reason. We need her. And I ended up actually getting a severance check that he had given me when at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, well, here's your, you know, here's the check back. He's like, oh, just keep it. And it ended up being a huge benefit to us. Yes, because I didn't go home and I didn't just give up and and not do my job. I stayed put, I stayed calm, and I ended up being greatly blessed by it. This is kind of a small example, but still, when you keep doing the things that you know to do, even in spite of somebody who doesn't like you or in spite of adversity, things will go better for you. Right. Yeah, I think you just hit the nail on the head. Your your attitude when someone comes against you, whether justified or not, will change the outcome. 
if you fly off the handle at someone just because they're angry at you or if you get upset or you have a temper tantrum or whatever, uh, it's not going to go well for you. And that sort of response is called stoicism, being able to be stoic mm-hmm. in the in the face of it. It's actually considered to be a uh, masculine trait. And in today's day and age, it's considered to be part of toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. the, the ability to remain stoic in the face of, of opposition. And that's actually why so many people who are on the the side where toxic masculinity is actually a thing are not stoic in any way they will blow up in your face they will respond they will they will let you know how they feel and that and sort of response is not going to do good things for your cause and it ends up revealing their foolishness yeah at least per scripture right well and and per my eyes anyway well, no. and, <laughs> I mean, in in light of how people react, I would much prefer someone remain calm and be able to rationally and calmly talk through a situation and deal with stuff than to just fly off the handle. Because the moment you start doing that, all logical conversation is out the window. Because emotions have taken over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, there is an evil I have seen under the sun, a mistake coming from a ruler. Folly is set in many high positions while the rich sit in humble place. It's comparing fools and rich. I would, in my mind, think that wise would be a better word than rich there. But I think it's comparing the son of the CEO is now in charge, even though he's a complete moron, where the other guys who actually know how to do the job are in lower positions simply because they don't, you know, they're not related or whatever. I think there's a deeper wisdom to it than that. Um, I read a book decades ago called The Millionaire Next Door. Mm, Um, And it mm -hmm. it was just a survey of millionaires, just the author of the book just sat down with hundreds and hundreds of millionaires and asked them questions about their lives and, and so on and so forth. And he came to some very surprising results. The most common vehicle driven by millionaires was a Ford F-150, a used Ford F-150. Most millionaires lived in simple suburban homes. Most millionaires lived very simple lives. They had a job or they, they owned a business and they would live well within their means. And I think that might be what Solomon's getting at here is that the fools, they're the ones that are wasting their money. They're the Hollywood elite. They're the ones that are out there flashing their cash and everybody look at me, look at me, I'm rich. Mm. Well, the guy who's actually rich doesn't care if you see him. He's just out there doing his job and living his life and he's he's doing okay. Uh, He doesn't need to be seen. And I think that might be what Solomon's getting at with that one. That could be. I can see that for sure. Yeah. So I've seen servants on horses and rulers walking on the ground like servants. Mm. Okay. That's a, that's a good observation. That, uh, well, I think that that's 
continuing from the from the previous right it's it's the idea that uh, things aren't always what they seem just because someone's on a horse doesn't mean that they're rich or that they have their will to do they could just be a servant and just because someone's walking on the ground doesn't mean that they're poor and it's the idea of ascribing position to people based on their circumstances just because a guy drives a lamborghini or (laughs) lives in a five-bedroom mansion with 2,500 square feet doesn't mean that they're rich. They're probably leveraged to the hilt in order to appear rich. Right. But in the simple guy walking along in jeans and a t-shirt and driving a beat-up Ford F-150 doesn't necessarily mean he's poor. It just means he knows how to use his money and he knows how to get the most out of what he's got. Yeah, I think it's a judging based on appearances type statement. He who digs a pit falls into it, and whoever breaks through a wall is bitten by a snake. Oh, man. Mine says, breaks through a fence may be be bitten by a snake. Right. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits wood is endangered by them. All right, so that is the things that you do. There's risk, there's danger in the work that you do. I'm not not really sure how much more there is to that. You, You dig a pit. There's a chance you could fall. You you tear down walls. You're in demolition. Eh, you could expose a sna- snake nest or a roach nest or a <laughs> something dangerous inside of it. You quarry stones. You might have one fall on you. You split wood. I mean, one of the most dangerous jobs in America or in the world is lumberjack. Lumberjack is a very high mortality profession because those trees can kick out and you're dealing with saws and mechanical saws that don't care one bit for your flesh and that's very dangerous work and i think that's kind of where he's getting it i I think it has to do with that there is inherent risk in everything that you do right but when you go down to verse 10 and it's talking about if the iron axe is blunt and one doesn't sharpen the edge then he must exert more force right so wisdom has advantage of giving success right so it's it's talking about, and I, I just kind of see the whole thing as one section, and it's talking about how, regardless of what you do, there is inherent danger to it. But at the same time, if you use wisdom to your advantage, you're going to have more success. Right, so it's the work smarter, not harder principle. Yeah, yeah. Apply um, wisdom to your querying of rock and you'll have less likelihood of one falling on you. Right. I mean, that that there are ways around that inherent danger. There are ways to to be intelligent in what you do to minimize risk. Use a sharp axe. Don't use a dull axe because you're going to have to use more force. Yeah. Well, I, and I think it's a combination of things because the, the one about the axe head being sharp, that is the work smarter, not harder principle. But the previous two verses, I, I think it's just more addressing the risk inherent in, in physical labor. You know, you go out and rake the leaves, you could pull a muscle in your back. You drive a riding lawnmower and don't treat it right. You can run over your foot or someone else. Or a twig and it throws, or yeah. a rock and it throws something. Or or you run over a bee's nest and now you're, right. you know, swarmed by bees. There's there's inherent risk in every single thing you do. Right. Even if you sit at home and you work on your computer, there's the risk of obesity. There's the risk of carpal tunnel. There's the risk of 
you know, repetitive stress injuries, the risk of eye injuries. There's, there's all sorts of risks. There's a risk that your chair could break underneath you and you'd fall on the floor and hurt your head. There's a risk in anything that you do. Right. And uh, I think that's uh, something we need to recognize. And I think that's kind of what, what Solomon is recognizing there. It's all, it's all kind of pointing to the upside down nature of reality. And the uh, no one knows what's coming after him type reality. In fact, he's going to repeat that here again very mm-hmm. shortly. Yep. Um, but it's uh, it's all kind of speaking to this. It's just kind of summing up this. It, things aren't always what you expect them to be. Right. Um, That's what it was talking about before in, in the last section. Right. But definitely that here because people think, oh, well, you know, I've done this for years and years and years. I'm, I'm an expert at thus and so. Right. And... The tree falls on them. You know, you never can truly be safe. Right. Safety is an illusion. And especially in today's day and age, we all are so worried about safety. And and I say we as in the the nation, the society. We're so consumed with this safety idea mentality that we are giving up our autonomy, our independence, and our ability to be sovereign individuals. Right. So Benjamin. Simply so that we can be safe, which is right. a complete illusion. So Benjamin Franklin uh, is famous for saying where he says that he who gives up freedom for safety deserves neither. And that's a, that's a really profound statement. Uh, yeah. And this entire section does kind of touch on that idea that Benjamin Franklin wasn't necessarily the first one to to introduce the idea he just said it in a uh, a way that we can relate to mm-hmm. um if the snake bites without enchantment then the master of the tongue is no better huh so mine says if the snake bites before it is charmed then there's no profit for the charmer Okay, that makes a little more sense. Yeah. That makes a little more sense. Um, what does it say the ESV in the says Hebrew? the same thing. It will bite the, the snake. Well, you just have something about the tongue. Enchantment. Oh, the master of the tongue. Uh, it's probably just a term for the, the Shonia, the babbler. It's uh, probably just an idiom that your translation just decided to skip out on and, and translate for us. Hmm. Because it's an idiom that doesn't translate well. Gotcha. So the... the uh, Master of the tongue would be the charmer. He'd be the person who, who is in charge of charming the snake. Gotcha. So yeah, you know, if you're if you're trying to charm a snake and it bites you before you're able to charm it, guess what? Your charming did you no good. Right. It's that same idea. It's just just being repeated in a different and culturally relevant to Solomon way that makes us squint our eyes and turn our heads just a little bit and go, huh? Right. Well, there's a lot of that in this particular. <laughs> right section this whole this whole chapter all right so the words of a wise man's mouth show favor but the lips of a fool swallow him up well that one that one makes sense that one makes sense completely yeah Yeah. the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is wicked madness so the fool's going to reveal himself through his words that's it's simple as that and this isn't a new idea to Ecclesiastes. The the foolish man is, and it's not a new idea to Solomon. Uh, when we get to Proverbs, we're going to see a lot of this as well. And, and the, quite frankly, it's not a new idea to any of us because every right. single one of us knows the person that 
babbles. That can't keep their mouth shut and literally says everything that comes into their head. Right. And has no filter and just speaks with no wisdom. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's super common. And it's also something that's rather common among people who have come off of certain drugs. For example, yeah. we, we dealt yeah, with the- their filters burned up. Right. We've dealt with people who have come off of meth in the past and have recovered from it. But it it seems like in nearly every case that those who went far enough in meth for it to start damaging their teeth to the point where they're falling out, they lose their filter. Like yeah. it's just completely burned out of their brains. And, and everything that comes into their head comes just out comes the mouth. right out their mouth. It's like the right. those their teeth falling out was kind of like a physical symbol of this uh this the vents for their words being removed and now it just kind of flows out without any mm-hmm. without any stopping. So the lesson of that being stay off the meth. But also it's good to learn silence. So often we pray, Lord, give me the words to speak, but more often than not, we need to pray, Lord, help me know when to stay silent. Because silence actually can reveal a lot of wisdom. And it goes back to that idea of stoicism before an accusation from a ruler, from someone who's in charge of you. Your manager comes at you and starts accusing you of things or is riled up rather than rising to meet him. Just remain silent and allow it to be. And uh, in the end, you may end up with a giant blessing. You just got to learn to allow it to happen. And he multiplies words. A fool multiplies words. Yes, next verse. Though no man knows what is to be. Who is to declare to him what shall be after him? Again, there's that idea that we just talked Mm -hmm. about. That we're we're limited. Uh, We saw it a couple chapters ago. The limits of wisdom were that you, you... can't know all and this is this is part of that i think he's kind of saying that the practice of wisdom is in knowing what you don't know and shutting up about it and just knowing when to stop talking mm-hmm. which uh, kind of feels like it's talking to us right now yeah we need to stop talking about this <laughs> <laughs> all right so we'll see you all next week uh-huh. have a good week oh we've still got a few more yeah, verses let's go more. ahead and get through these um the labor of fools wearies them because no one knows how to go to the city. Mine says no one knows how to go to town. He, right. he doesn't know how to go to town. The labor of fools wearies them because not one knows how to go to the town. <laughs> I, I don't. This has to be an idiom. Yeah. There's, there's no way that it is. It's, yeah, it's got to be talking about, uh, as Rebecca said, the person who can't find their way out of a paper bag. Which in the ancient Near East, when you don't have GPS and you're walking everywhere, and uh, that's got to be a sign of foolishness. You can't get to your job because you can't follow simple directions to to walk to the place where the job might be. Yeah, I don't know. That's the best I got. So, okay, no one knows what will happen and who can tell him what will happen after him. The mischief of fools wearies them, for he doesn't know how to go to town. So I think it's going from the previous verse, too. I think it I think it has more to do with, if you can't even tell how to get to town, how much more don't you know? You, you think you know all these things, but you can't even get from here to town. You know, it's, it's more along the lines of, what you know or don't know. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
Yeah. Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a youth and your rulers feast in the morning. Okay, so this reminds me of actually Solomon's son. Um, if you turn to, uh, I think it's First Kings chapter 11, when Solomon passes on and there's a question of succession. The people come to Solomon's son, yeah, Rehoboam, yep, yep. and they ask him about, will you do like your father did and keep us under these heavy ta- taxes, or are you going to relent and release our release our pressures and and remove our taxes? And he goes to all of his, he goes to the old men of the city, and they say, yes, release, let the people be free, you know, do good to your people, and they'll love you. But then he goes to his friends, his the youths that he grew up with, and they're like, no, you need to rule with fear and an iron rod. Let them know you're going to be, you're the king, and increase the taxes. And so he goes and he tells them he's going to increase the taxes, which then ends up with a split in the land. And Jeroboam is recalled from Egypt to come and rule over the northern kingdom. Uh, it causes a schism in Israel. Woe to you, O land. When your child is a youth, or when your king is a youth. Mine has a note that says the word youth could also mean servant. Can you look um, that up? Na'ar. Na'ar, a Na'ar, child. A child. It, okay. it can also be a, uh, so it's a boy, a lad, a servant, a youth, or a retainer. So it's like saying, hey, you, you young lad, calling to a servant. Uh, an errand boy, a messenger boy. You okay. know, you're riding along, and there's a servant there. Young boy, come over here. Okay, you, lad, come over here. Let me yeah. let me ask you to do something. Someone without honor, right? In this that, is a in this is a, a very low. It's someone who's very very uh, low status. Okay, because I was thinking that it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if it was servant, because. Throughout scripture, we see that the king is supposed to be the servant of. Right. Yeah. The king is to be servant of, of all. The people and the servant of, yeah, of, of his whole land. You know, when you continue reading and it's talking about the feast, the, the prince's feasting in the morning, that makes sense. It's like, okay, the, the king has no honor and the princes are just being wasteful and gluttonous and, drunkards right so basically this kingdom has no real rulers well it has a fool in charge right woe to the land that has a fool for a king right bless for you O land when your king is the son of nobles and your rulers feast in due season for strength and not for drunkenness so that actually really uh stands out to me that the there is a reason to feast Mm-hmm. There is a reason to hold feasts for a king. It's not always inherently bad. There is a time to feast for the purpose of strengthening yourself and strengthening alliances and strengthening your neighbors and lifting each other up. Um, we have feasts exactly. multiple times a year. Well, we call them feasts, but that doesn't mean that they're actual like feasts like they would they would have experienced with the singers and dancers and, you know, Merrymaking and large plates that are just mm-hmm. constantly passed through, and um, the the feasts that we celebrate. I mean, we could better term those holidays simply, right? Right. And it would be because Yom Kippur is not a feast. That's fair. Matzah is. is not a feast. 
It's a festival. It's right. a holiday. Right. Okay. So we need to. It is an appointed time. Right. 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 Yeah. So this is actually uh, uh, speaking of feasting, I believe. Let me make sure. Yachal, yeah, it's drinking. The root of that word for feasting is yachal, which just means to eat, to devour, consume. The word for eat that's been strengthened. So there we go. By laziness, the rafters sag, and by idle hands, the house leaks. Because of laziness, the framework tumbles. Yep. So, yeah, the the lazy man, the sloth, the idle man, they don't do the necessary repairs. Um, As we call it in the military, PMCS, Preventative Maintenance and Checking Services. And that's something we had to do before we used anything. If we were driving a vehicle, we had to go through an entire checklist of PMCS checks just to make sure that it was in running, working, operating order. We had to check everything from tire pressure to looking to leaks, making sure windows rolled up and down, making sure that the latches worked right, making sure that even the fire extinguishers were full. And you had to do it before everything. If you were using a toolbox, you had to go through the toolbox beforehand and make sure everything was in the toolbox and make sure it was all in in functioning and working condition before you went on the job. It seemed a little overkill overkill, uh, at the time, but it, it... does make sense, especially when you get to the reserve side when you may not use those vehicles for six months. They just mm-hmm. sit there and then you come in six months and it's still sitting there and you're you're getting ready to go a couple hundred miles down the road. <laughs> you're going to want to check for leaks. You're going to want to check, make sure your brakes work. You're going to want to check, mm-hmm. you know, that all your lights are working and so on and so forth. So basically the guy who sits around in his house and the house falls around him. Um, it's his own fault. It's his own fault. Yep. A feast is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money or silver answers all. Yes. So drinking isn't a sin. It's not. It makes life glad. It makes it bearable. A feast is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life. And the money answers all. Money is the answer for everything. Wow, we can take that sucker out of context. Everything's got a price, don't you know? It's interesting, that concept. I mean, he was rather wealthy. He was rather wealthy. um, Yeah, I don't know what to do with that, to be honest with you, because the love of money is... Is the root of evil? The root of evil. But money is the answer for everything? Well, and I think he's getting to the point where he is looking out on the world. He's making his you know, philosophy of life. He's recognizing where there's folly, where there's brokenness, where things work and they don't. And he's recognizing that, hey, if you get into trouble, if you got enough money, you'll get out of it. Yeah. Well, and the other side of the house falling in around you is... You might want to be able to do something about it, but you don't have the money to do it. You don't have the money to answer it. Right. I would think, though, connected to feasts and laughter and wine and gladdening life. uh, I think it's more pointing to uh, just the idea of... Money does make life easier. Money makes life easier. It really does. The love of it is evil, but having it, man, it sure makes things go a lot smoother for you. And that's, that is a truth in every yeah. age. Yeah. 
Do not curse the king, even in your thoughts. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird in the heavens conveys the voice, and a bird in flight makes the matter known. You never know so, who's listening. Yeah. So be careful. Oh, yeah. be careful, little mouth, what you speak. It's the whole Gandalf whispering to the moth. Well, that's a, <laughs> um, but it's it's a that's an idiom though that the you know a little birdie heard it or a little, a little birdie, birdie told, told me. me. Yeah. Um, and that's the idea that uh, someone's going to overhear you. Right. Just just be careful. The walls have ears. Right. The walls have ears. That when you're talking bad about someone, even be careful not to even think against your king because. Especially if you live in North Korea, yeah, the government absolutely. can find out, and that's a that's a bad thing. Man, uh, the uh, for anyone who ever read the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whew, man, that book related stories of a man working in a shop who, when he stuck a newspaper on his on his wall in his shop, the thumbtack went through Stalin's face. And he was sent off to the gulag. Wow. Yeah, because he disrespected the great leader. And it's just that that idea that when you, especially when you have a very stern leader, one who ex- loves to exercise authority, especially authority over lives, uh, just be very careful. And I think our society could definitely learn this a lot. We're, our society needs to learn some respect. We are for very rulers. free to criticize our rulers, our, our leaders. I won't say rulers because they don't really rule over us, but they do lead us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do need to be very much more careful. When the guy on the other side gets into office, we gotta be super careful. This isn't Biden's economy. You know, it's happening under Biden's watch, but this is this is the Fed's economy. They're the ones who built the house of cards. It's it's the stock market. It's the investors. It's it's a it's, whole. Con- it's our economy because yeah. we put these people in charge. And, and it's our economy because we've been consumers for so long. Mm-hmm. We consume, we consume, we consume, and we're just as guilty as anyone else. We're just as guilty as Biden. And I just I, I might hate not to- like the guy. Right. Let's just be honest. I'm not a huge Biden fan, nope. but. You know, he's made policies that I wouldn't choose. And he's made policies that have exacerbated the situation. Certainly. Sure. And I don't necessarily like the policies that he's put in place. But we should not be disrespecting the man and talking about him as if he's some sort of... Evil monster. Evil monster. He's... Even if he is a reptilian, he's still our leader. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I've been guilty of it. I have as well. And I was guilty of it with the previous guy. I I was not a huge Trump fan either. You know, and he made policies I didn't like. And I would not have chosen. You know, and but the people themselves, we don't know these people. Right. We don't need to be speaking ill of them. We don't need to be tearing them down. Well, right. And, and it's uh, it goes back to Romans chapter 13, where, you know, it's honor your government and uh, give honor to whom honor is due. As our leaders, we need to be giving honor 
to those who are our leaders. We don't need to be tearing them down. We don't need to be going to the public squares of Facebook and Twitter and just shouting at the top of our lungs, I don't like our rulers. Not my president. Not my president. Yeah, other people do it. That's on them. But we have to be above that. And our Bible tells us, the word of God tells us to show honor to our rulers. And to pray for their good. Because their good is our good. So, yeah, um, with that, I I think that's a good note to close on. We need to be much more respectful of those who are in positions of authority. As it says, being stoic in the face of authority, especially when that authority is riled up, it can go a long way towards making your situation better. But one thing that won't make your situation better is getting very vocal, getting very agitated, and rising up and shouting down your your leaders. That's not going to be good for anyone. Yeah, this entire this entire chapter kind of speaks to the king, the ruler, right? The one who's over you. We don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. We don't know how to get to town. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But but we need to be intentional about how we respond yes. to the situations that we find ourselves in and yes. we need to be wise. Yeah. We need to focus on the things that we actually can have an effect on and let God deal with the rest. Right. Pray for the good of your community for your good of your country for the good of your rulers right but yeah it would be great if our rulers had sense and honor yeah but you know what that's not a prerequisite and it's not ours to to hold their toes to the fire the best we can do in our situation is we can vote that's the best any of us can do. None of us is being listened to. None of us is setting policy. None of us are the people who have an ear to the government. Uh, it's not on us. And so just be quiet about it. So anyway, yeah, with that, life and death is in the power of the tongue. And uh, that's something that's very highlighted in this in this particular chapter. And the fool is the one who allows their tongue to go. And I think death is kind of found... At the end of that, life is found in the tongue of the wise. So seek life. In all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.